0: to the scriptures are real podcast this is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we think that helps us draw more power out of them and we need that help today there really is a power in the scriptures and the people in them are real and the stories and the god of them are real and that's what we like to talk about today i'm your host carrie mulestein and this is a short cast on the book of Zechariah. I have to tell you, I love the book of Zechariah. A lot of people don't know much about it, but I love, love, love some of the messages of Zechariah. I think there's so much power in this little teeny book, and I'm excited to talk about it with you. Let me give you just kind of a bullet point preview of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to do just a little bit of background on the book of Zechariah, and then we're going to talk about uh, kind of his, his main points. I'm going to help you see uh, kind of a, an overview that will give you a way of approaching the book to see the visions. This book is mostly about visions. And so we'll kind of give you an overview of the visions that will help you kind of work your way through them. And then we're going to hit on a couple of uh, my favorite teachings from those visions that I think have deep personal applications. And then we're going to talk about some things that have to do with the first and the second coming of the Savior that are in those visions. Just so much powerful stuff. We really could make this a very, very long podcast. But instead, we're going to uh, make this a short cast and just uh, give you the highlights so that you can jump in and study uh, Zechariah just fine on your own. So let me give you just a, a little bit of background about Zechariah. It's a short book. Uh, Zechariah's name means Jehovah remembers or remembered of Jehovah. In a lot of ways, that sums up Zechariah's message. Uh, th- he is after the time of the exile. So he's prophesying at the same time as Haggai. Within about two months of Haggai, he starts prophesying. Uh, and this is the time when Zerubbabel is the the governor of Judah. So if you'll remember right, after they've been in Babylon and uh, the Persians conquer Babylon, that Cyrus the Great allows the Jews to return back to Jerusalem. Most of them don't go. But Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of, the, the, of Zedekiah and of the kings, well, I don't know if you remember if it's Zedekiah or Jehoiakim, one of those last kings of Judah, he is a descendant. He is a Davidic descendant, has right to be king. But of course, the Persians aren't going to allow a king there. So they're, they're, they are they're appoint governors. But he is made the governor of the land. And Joshua, who is a descendant of the high priest of that Zadokite line of high priests. Uh, so Joshua and Zerubbabel will head this up and they've gone back to Jerusalem and they've been there for quite a while, for many years, I think 13, 15 years, something like that. And they haven't quite gotten to building the temple yet. And we talked about this in Haggai in my, my podcast with uh, Joshua Matson. And I hope you listen to that and you get this idea that they're struggling to get by and they, they're neglecting the temple. So Zechariah is one of the prophets. He's mentioned in the book of Ezra. He is one of the prophets that helps them, probably the major moving force. I think Haggai certainly did some things. So Zechariah has more prophecies and, and interacts with the leaders more from what we can tell. So he's one of the major forces behind getting them to actually build the temple. So they've had all these difficulties of the exile these years in Babylon, and now Zechariah is going to assure his people that are God's people that God remembers them. Hence, the name is so perfect. Jehovah remembers or they're remembered of Jehovah. He remembers them and he wants them to return to him. And he's going to continually offer them opportunity to put the sins of the past behind them and start over, start anew and receive all the blessings he's always wanted to give them through the covenant. If they'll just keep the covenant, he is anxious to bless them. So Zechariah is a very visionary man. And as I, I spoke about, we're going to look at his visions in just a second. But I first want to just highlight a couple of things right here at the beginning of, of chapter one. Zechariah chapter one. In verse one, we get the time period where it is and, and what's happening. But verse two, the Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers, therefore saying to them, thus saith the Lord of hosts. And this line in many ways sums up we, we have. Uh, something akin to this line all over the place in the old testament but in a lot of ways this sums up what the old testament is about so much so that i have a book that was inspired partially by this line and partially by a line in malachi who will uh, be just after this uh and uh, he's the next book we cover and they say similar things so this is what he says thus saith the lord of hosts turn ye unto me saith the lord of hosts and i will turn unto you saith the lord of hosts so that's it My, my book's called return unto me but Uh, That's what he keeps asking, turn to me so I can turn to you. I'm waiting, I'm begging you. I just want to be with you. I want to bless you. You just need to return to me. Verse four, be not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts. So basically saying, don't be like your fathers who the prophets kept saying, speaking in my name and they were ignored. He's saying instead, turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Your fathers, where are in And the prophets, do they live forever? And so he's saying, no, they they don't. It's going to go on to say he and his statutes live forever. But the major thrust of Zechariah's message is that God remembers his people and he pleads with them, turn ye unto me and I will turn unto you. I think that's really powerful stuff. Let's do an overview of the, the visions that we have in uh, Zechariah. And then we're going to hit on a couple of them a little bit more in detail. So we have visions one through three are really about the glory of Zion. Okay, so vision one is in chapter one, verses seven through nine. We're going to hit on this one a little bit more uh, in detail in a second. But these are men on red and speckled horses. And uh, we get these uh, questions and answers that that often happen to these visions. So the question is, what are these? And the answer is that they, they go around and they find peace. We'll we'll hit on that some more in a minute. Vision two. Uh, is in chapter one, verse 18, and he sees the four horns. And then the question is in verse 19, what be these? And the answer is in 19 through 21, they are, they, these horns scattered Israel. And then there are four carpenters who will undo their effects. And it would seem then that it's implied that the carpenters will build up Zion and the temple. Uh, and Israel is going to be scattered, uh, And uh, but building Jerusalem and the temple will undo the scattering. Uh, the Israel has been scattered, I should say. But building the temple in Jerusalem will undo the scattering as they come back to make their covenants. Vision three happens in chapter two, verse one, where he sees a man with a measuring line, and the question is, "Whither goest thou?" And it's to measure Jerusalem, and we'll cover that one a little bit more in in uh, in detail. My favorite one is vision uh, four, and uh, we'll talk about the, this one more in detail. But I, let me just say in general, visions four through eight are. Uh, How do we get to the point where we can build the temple? So, uh, as I said, visions one through three are about the glory of Zion, about the need to rebuild Zion in glory. And visions four through eight are how do we get to the point where we can do that? So vision four is in chapter three, verses one through four. And it's about the high priest. Um, And then we get vision five, which is in chapter four, verses one through three. And he sees a candlestick and a bowl and two olive trees. And he asks in verse 4, what are these? And the answer is in verses 6 through 14. is tied to the temple and and that uh, the temple will be rebuilt and that Israel is a light to the world. And Israel is to hold the light of Christ to all the world. And that light comes from oil or the Holy Ghost. And, and there are two prophets who will supply that oil or bring with them with the Holy Ghost. So a lot of fun things uh, with that. Vision 6 is in chapter 5, verse 1, where he sees a flying roll. I remember quoting this uh, before we do a toilet papering when I was a youth, but in any case, verse 2, we got, oh, hang on. So uh, after he sees the flying roll, which I don't think has anything to do with toilet papering, but anyway, he asks, what seest thou? And in verses uh, 3 through 4 of chapter 5, he says that judgment is represented on the roll, and sinners will be cut off. We get vision seven in chapter five, verses five through nine. And it's a woman in a bushel and she's filthy. And verse 10 is the question, Whither does it go? And and verse 11 is the answer to Shinar. That, that seems to be Babylon. And we've got a symbol of sin and apostasy. And, and so sins have to be taken away. Uh, it seems to be the interpretation of that. Vision eight is in chapter six, verses one through three. We get four chariots and different colored horses. And the question is in verse four, what are these? And the answer is in verses 5 through 13. Those are the four corners that will be gathered. And the branch, which is, seems to be a branch of the house of David. We've got this mentioned elsewhere. This idea that there's a branch of the house of David. And that, of course, I think the greatest fulfillment of that is Christ. He will build build the temple and be a priest and rule. Uh, but, I mean, there are probably other fulfillments of it as well. Uh, so, uh, that's, that's those first set of visions. Uh, there are some other... Uh, issues about the prophecies about the Messiah and uh, the second coming that we'll touch on in a moment. But what I want to do right now is take the chance to dive into a couple of visions a little more in in depth. So chapter 1, the first vision, we get in verse 7. It tells us that he's going to see this vision. In verse 8, I saw by night and behold a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom. So probably down in the bottom of the The valleys around Jerusalem would be my guess, so the Kidron Valley or the uh, one of the other valleys around there. And um, there are myrtle trees with this red horse, and behind him, the red horse or the man on the red horse, there were red horses and speckled and white. So we have these other horses, and I said, "Oh my Lord, what are these?" And the angel that talked with me and said to me, "I will show thee what these be." And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord had sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have taught, walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years? And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. In other words, um, These horse riders have been sent out, they're scouts, they do reconnaissance, they find that there's peace, it's not all the turmoil and and tumult of the Babylonians and destroying everything, there's peace now, and since there's peace, then it seems like it's time for Jerusalem and the temple to be rebuilt. So this is a message, really what Zechariah is trying to do is to get the people to rebuild the temple. And part of the way he's doing that is to to convince them that God is ready for them to rebuild it. He's The conditions are right for them to rebuild it and that God is making them worthy to rebuild it. So this is the kind of conditions are right. It's peaceful. God's prepared it so that they can do that. Uh, and they're going to, to be able to build it up. But he uh, also says uh, in verse 16, therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. Now, that's that's. Anytime you read about mercies, it's a good thing. Some of you may be wondering if this is the word for chesed. This is not. This is the word for mercies. But he says, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts. And a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. So the lines are to measure things out. Right? Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities, though prosperity, shall yet be spread abroad. And the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Uh, It's it's beautiful and wonderful and uh, so happy that they they're being assured that because of God's mercy, they will be able to build the house again and there will be prosperity. Uh, It's fantastic stuff. So uh, let's let's keep going. Uh, We've got in chapter two, I lifted up my eyes again and beheld a man with a measuring line in his hand. And he asked where he's going to go. And he says to measure Jerusalem to see the breadth and what's the length. Uh, and then the angel goes out to meet him in verse four and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. For I say, the Lord will be unto her a wall of fire roundabout and will be the glory in the midst of her. So you get this idea: they're going to measure out. As, as you build something, you have to measure out the uh, the dimensions, right, the, to be able to build it. That's a common. um, Metaphor and symbol sometimes for judgment and sometimes for growth and building and it's here; it's the growth and building Jerusalem the, the covenantal blessings are going to come again Jerusalem will be built and prosper, and it will all be wonderful, and uh, so that's, that's what he's talking about here, with the promise that it will get so big that it will extend outside of the walls, but that's okay, they don't need the walls, because God will be a wall of fire to protect them, that's, that's wonderful stuff. But, of course, what they have to come to realize, there there are a couple of things going on here. One, they have to realize conditions are right. And these first visions are telling them conditions are right. The other is that they have to realize that they are forgiven and that they're clean and that they can and should build a temple. Sometimes we're held back by worrying about ourselves and whether we're taken care of. Sometimes we're held back by thinking the conditions aren't right. And sometimes we're held back by fear that the things we've done wrong in the past. Uh, have made us unworthy to continue to move forward in the future. And so I love this next vision that's in chapter three because it addresses this right on. Uh, and it's it's one of my favorite things in all of the Old Testament and all of scripture. Verse one of chapter three, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. So you, you're familiar with the traditional little uh, imagery of an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other shoulder and they're both whispering in your ears trying to get you to do good and bad and studio c is taking this like to to insane heights but anyway but that's this that imagery comes from this vision where there's an angel standing on one side and satan on the other side verse two and the lord said unto satan the lord rebuke thee O satan even the lord that hath chosen jerusalem rebuke thee is not this a brand plucked out of the fire so he's saying satan you have to leave uh, we, the Jews were being destroyed, but I am plucking a, a brand or a, a branch out of the fire. This is the remnant that I am sparing. Verse three. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. Don't we all feel that way sometimes that we've done things that make it so that we are standing before God and his angels in filthy garments that were covered in filth. And th- that's a feeling none of us enjoy. Verse 4, and he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Just that's beautiful. Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him, meaning Joshua, he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. That's so incredible to me. Yes. They were in filthiness. They were wicked as could be. We've talked about how wicked they were in other podcasts, but now God is going to take the filthiness away and cause the iniquity to pass from him and us and clothe the in, in beautiful clean garments or raiments. And remember that the Hebrew word we transfer translate as atonement, Kippur means to cover. There's some real symbolism behind being wrapped in the robes of righteousness or in clean garments. Uh, and, We have this symbolism in our temple today. Let's not forget that. That's very important to think of that symbolism and being uh, covered in ordinances of the priesthood uh, that clothe us with power and holiness and take away our filth. The filth is washed away and instead we're we're anointed and filled with holy, clean garments. It's wonderful. So again, behold, I've caused thine iniquity to pass from thee and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And verse five. And I said, let them set a fair miter upon his head. So they set a fair miter upon his head. A miter is, if, I mean, if we're talking about Joshua, the high priest. So we're talking about the, the priestly garments, and it's the priestly garments that have become filthy, but now they're going to be clothed. And he was covered with a, a specific kind of hat that they wore, like a cap that they wore that was part of the priestly garments. And this cap was symbolic, in, uh, uh, maybe of many things, but certainly of a crown. A miter is like the, the cap or the crown. And I, I want you to think of that. When you feel too filthy, just remember this. God will take away your filthiness. He will cause your iniquity pet to pass from you. He will give you clean garments and the miter awaits. The crown awaits. God wants not just to cleanse you, but to give you the crown and to make you all that you ever thought you could be and so much more as you become a king or a queen. It's, it's beautiful and powerful. The filthiness leaves and the miter awaits. And the angel of the Lord protested it unto Joshua saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, if thou wilt walk in my ways and if thou wilt keep my charge, so in other words, keep the covenant, then thou shalt also judge my house and shalt also keep my courts and I will give thee places to walk among these that stand by. He's telling Joshua, I can cleanse you so that you can run my temple. And that will give everyone else a chance to also be cleansed and and clothed in royal garments. Verse 8, hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at, for behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Uh, So all sorts of of things we could go through with that. But that's that's kind of the highlight I wanted to get to uh, with that vision. I think it's so beautiful and powerful. Let's hit on just a couple of other things. Um, chapter 8, we get to some different kinds of visions. This is when we get to the visions that have uh, more things to do with the, the Messiah and with the last days. Of course, there are multiple ways it can be fulfilled, and some of them will be in, in Zechariah's day. But we're going to emphasize a couple of things, and one that, that's very real to me. Uh, So if we start in chapter eight, again, the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was zealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous with her with great fury. Thus saith the Lord. So Zion had to be or Jerusalem had to be cleansed and purged. But now I am returned unto Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Oh, I love this. I love this, the idea that Jerusalem and Jerusalem standing for the covenant people, covenant individuals and covenant people as a whole can be cleansed and have God dwell in the midst of us. Think in, in terms of what uh, Ezekiel saw when we, they lost God's presence, but then they regain God's presence. And that happens for all of us as people, that happens for us as individuals. And then we can be a city of truth and a holy mountain. Now, listen to these particular Um. These particular verses, verse four and five are some of my favorite verses, and I'll tell you a a little bit of of why. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet be old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. So uh, it's not just going to be the young who have to come and and are vigorous enough to make the long journey back to Jerusalem and rebuild it, Uh, but they will then grow old there. And that's wonderful. Now listen to the next verse. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Now, there's no image that is more uplifting and wholesome and makes you just feel good about the world than to see little boys and little girls play out playing on the playground or the streets together. I'll tell you, when I was a student studying Hebrew in Jerusalem, this was in 1994, and one day I was wandering around the, uh, the old city. And I saw um, uh, going from one street to another, it went down a level because there are all these hills in, in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, there, there were a set of stairs that you could take to get from one street down to the other. And uh, they had uh, on either side of the stairs, they, they, were, they weren't steep stairs, they were kind of gradual stone stairs and they had uh, not, not a rail, but just kind of built up stone ramp. Uh, it was, wasn't meant to be a ramp, but that's what it formed was a ramp on either side of the stairs. And of course, there were some little boys and little girls who saw a ramp and had turned it into a slide and they were sliding on this ramp and having a great time. And I thought this is a great picture. And I took a picture of it. Unfortunately, this was in the day when there were slides and that slide got ruined by a machine. And uh, and I don't have it anymore, sadly, because what I realized after I'd taken the picture is that there was written in gold um, a a verse of scripture. And uh, it was in Hebrew. And uh, it took me a little while. I was still working on on Hebrew and and, uh, it took me a little while, but I was able to read it while I was there. And I realized it's Zechariah chapter eight, verse five, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. thereof. There were boys and girls playing on the stones that had that scripture written on it. And I thought if this, I'm sure there are lots of fulfillments, but if this is not a fulfillment of that verse, I don't know what is. Uh, The scriptures are real and they're fulfilled. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, so it, sh- it also so should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, it may seem impossible to you, but not to me. I can do it. I can do all of these things. Well, there are a few more things that we should look at. We're going to look at chapter 9. And in chapter 9, um, he is continuing to give prophecies Uh, about uh, the future of Jerusalem. And we get verse nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. And it'll cut off, so let's just talk about that. This is how Solomon was crowned king. We talked about that back when we did uh, first Kings chapter one. Solomon is crowned king by riding on David's ass to the, the uh, Gihon spring, probably the gate there over the Gihon spring, and he was anointed king. And my guess would be every king after that had the same thing happen, except for in special circumstances when they were hiding someone in the temple because people wanted to kill him and things like that. My guess would be that every king rode an ass to that gate and was crowned king. It was a, an age old tradition in the ancient Near East to ride asses to uh, be crowned king. Uh, and so this isn't like suddenly new no one ever thought of this, but it's a prophecy that it will happen again. Uh, they, they were done with Kings at this point and may have been thinking that they would be done with Kings forever, but there's a prophecy that, that, uh, someone will ride on an ass again and be crowned King. Now, Matthew would get mixed up. This is parallelism. And so it says riding upon an ass upon a colt, the full of an ass. That's two ways of saying the same thing. Uh, But he kind of thought, oh, this must be two. And he kind of found a way for there to be two. And so on. it doesn't matter one way or the other. Uh, The issue is that Christ fulfills this prophecy. I don't know that Christ is the only one, but he may be because I can't think of any other kings they had. There there were Hasmonean leaders that kind of stylized themselves king and there's Herod and so on. Um, But they were none of them really kings. And I don't maybe they. They rode on asses there and maybe they were a fulfillment of it. I don't know, but the real and, and true fulfillment and the most important fulfillment is when Christ at the triumphal entry uh, rides on an ass and he rides actually past the Gihon Spring into the temple. And he doesn't come to restore the kingdom the way that people who are reading this verse would have thought of as in to conquer Rome and start a Jewish kingdom again. He goes straight to the temple and casts uh, out those who would desecrate the temple. And that, in some ways, is the beginning of his casting out death and hell themselves. As that's who he really conquers and the kingdom he really sets up. It's, it's uh, just fantastic stuff. One last prophecy that is, is really important, even though there are so many great things in these chapters. One last prophecy is very important. And this is in chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished. So this is not a happy prophecy. This is saying that there is another destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem. Uh, There's going to be this terrible battle and uh, they're they're going to be losing Jerusalem and uh, all sorts of bad stuff will happen. Now, in some ways, this this is fulfilled with what the romans do um and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city then shall the lord go forth and fight against those nations so this part certainly is not fulfilled in the roman era uh the romans destroy them and god didn't fight for them there they they that destruction was what god was allowing to happen then so again verse three then shall the lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and towards the west. And there shall be a great valley and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it towards the south. So there's going to be some vision that happens in the Mount of Olives where it starts in a center point and, and it starts to work. You know how cracks go. They go both directions So to the east and to the west. So it's going east west. Now, there is a natural kind of uh, rift in the, the whole big Mount of Olives. And big enough that they kind of named them two different mounts. The whole thing is Mount of Olives, but the northern half is called Mount Scopus. That's where uh, the Hebrew University is. And actually, Jerusalem Center is on the very southern edge of that northern half. And then you've got like the, the, uh, the Tower of Ascension and so on. It's on the southern half, which is called the Mount of Olives. It's all part of the Mount of Olives, but you've got it divided into two peaks. The the Mount Scopus and the uh, Mount of Olives, and so there's the little bit of a cleft in in the Mount of Olives right there. The Jerusalem Center actually sits right on that cleft, and that seems to me. I mean, I don't know, but if if the mountain's going to divide in half, that's the most likely place it would happen. So it would split east and west there, and then the, the mount's going to move to the north and the other to the south, making a big big valley there. I love being at the Jerusalem center. I've kind of always hoped I would not be there on that day. But anyway, um, and so it says there will be a great valley and half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north and half of it toward the south. So there's this big valley in verse five. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach into Azel. And so it seems like um, this is going to create a, a valley that gives the, those who are about to be destroyed a chance to be um, spared. And then we get verse 8, and it shall be in that day that living water shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinter sea. So this seems to be Dead Sea and Mediterranean Sea is what I'm guessing. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. Shall there be one Lord and his name one? So that's that's a, a, a great Prophecy about uh, Christ coming down and rescuing that city. This is one of the great battles of the last days that we often talk about. And then we get verses like uh, verse 16. uh, Everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feasts of the tabernacles. Or verse 20. And in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. That's what would be written there. And uh, the pots of the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seed therein. Uh, and, so, and there shall be no more of the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Instead, it's all uh, covenant people. This is when the covenant is fulfilled. Uh, everyone becomes a holy nation and a holy people, and everything is wonderful and blessed. Uh, as this happens in the last days. This is one of the visions of Zechariah. So a lot of comforting things uh, in these visions, a couple of things to be a little nervous about, but if we know how the story ends. It ends well with Christ as our King.